Well, I bring you greetings again in Jesus' precious name. It's good to see each one of you here faithfully every evening, and we have the privilege of opening the Word and meeting with those of like precious faith, and what a privilege it is to be gathered here again this evening. I invite you to turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3 this evening. I was recently in a store looking over some of the mottos there for sale and noticed one that proclaimed, Grow in Grace. Sounds like a good motto, right? A while back, uh, a brother asked me what it means, what does it mean to grow in grace? How do we grow in it? What is grace? He suggests that that might be a good sermon topic. I'd like to consider this passage this evening. Let's read the last verse of this chapter first, and then we'll go back to read the entire chapter to get the context a little bit later in the message. But 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, the last verse of 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Now this book is the second and the last book that the Apostle Peter wrote. So this is the thought and the instruction that Peter wished to leave with his readers. Grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What is grace? This is a term that we use quite often. Everything from our prayer before a meal where we say grace to how we might treat others. We might say to someone, be graceful toward him. Grace is always something that is positive, something that is good, but it's much like a multifaceted object that's difficult to describe or difficult to define in a few short statements. Still, we try to do that, don't we? And so some of the ways that we try to describe grace, we use an acrostic, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. Or maybe you've heard the acrostic similar, gained righteousness at Christ's expense, G-R-A-C-E. So we have acrostics, we have comparison. Now we often, to help define grace, we often compare it to mercy. And we might say that, well, mercy is not getting what we do deserve. In other words, it's not getting the punishment, it's not getting the judgment, it's not getting the, the uh, things that we deserve because of our sin. Whereas grace is getting what we don't deserve, it's getting salvation. It's getting blessings. It's getting things that we do not deserve. And so we use comparison, trying to compare mercy with grace to get an understanding of grace. Or then, of course, we have definitions as well. We often define grace as unmerited favor. And my Bible dictionary expands on that a bit with this definition. Defines grace as grace is favor or kindness shown without regard to the worth or merit of the one who received it, and in spite of what that same person deserves. Now, if you wanted to condense all of that into two words, it would be 
unmerited favor. This unmerited favor definition is very much in line with the Old Testament use of the word grace. In fact, in the Old Testament, the word for grace is translated favor more frequently than it's translated grace in the Old Testament. For example, whenever the Levites left Egypt, we read in Exodus chapter 11 and verse 3, and the Lord gave great favor, grace, great favor in the sight of the Egyptians. So as they carried out gold and raiment and other materials, many of which were used later to build the tabernacle, it's almost like the Egyptians were there saying, here, here, take this gold and take this uh, scarlet material and take this and take that. They found grace or favor in the sight of the Egyptians as they were leaving, leaving Egypt. This was not something that Israel earned. It was given in spite of what they deserved. It was given to them God, they view, the Egyptians viewed them with favor or with grace. In the New Testament, however, grace becomes even deeper and much broader than just unmerited favor. I've listed here 12 ways that grace is used. There could be many more, but 12 ways that grace is used in the New Testament. First of all, grace describes the nature of, and the effect of the gospel. In Acts chapter 20 and verse 24, we read, well, Paul expresses there his desire to finish his ministry well, and he says, which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. The gospel of the grace of God. Grace there describing the nature of the gospel and the effects of the gospel. On mankind. Secondly, grace describes the sum total of all the blessings received by believers. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 and verse 7. Verse 3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Verse 7 In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. We're given all these blessings according to the riches of his grace. So grace there describes the sum total of all the blessings that are given to believers. Grace, thirdly, is used to describe the work of Jesus Christ. In 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given in Christ Jesus before the world began. So it's the work of Christ there occupying his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Also, John 1.17, for the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. The work of Christ, grace and truth came through his work. Fourthly, it's the means of our salvation. Very familiar verses, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 7 to 9, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, 
not of works, lest any man should boast. By grace are you saved through faith. Also Titus chapter 2 and verse 11, for the grace of God that bringeth salvation has appeared to all men. The grace of God that brings salvation. Looking at the uses of the word grace. Another one, grace is the source of our justification. Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being freely, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Justified freely by his grace. So that's justification. Grace is also the work of sanctification. In Acts chapter 20 and verse 32, Now, brethren, I commend you to God and by the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. Okay? Commend you to God and the word of his grace. And what does that word of his grace do? It's able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. Grace also describes the glorification of the saints at Christ's return. 1 Peter 1.13, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The grace that's going to be brought to us at the last time, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so, grace... In, is part of each part of our salvation, justification and sanctification and glorification. There's grace associated with each aspect of our salvation. Number eight, grace is a comfort and hope to the believer. Second Thessalonians chapter two and verse 16. Now our Lord Jesus Christ and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good Hope through grace. Where does comfort come from? Grace is a part of that. Has given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace. Grace also describes the act of giving. You know, we, we give to the Lord's work. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 3 to 5 speaks of the liberal gift that was given to the poor that the church was collecting so that they could send along with Paul to take to the poor in Jerusalem. And in verse 6 there we write, we read, insomuch that we desired Titus, that as he had begun, say we would also finish in you this same grace also. Therefore, as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all diligence, add into your love to us that you may abound in this grace also. What grace is he referring to there? He's speaking about the grace of giving, that they were making this collection for the saints in Jerusalem. And he refers there to as this grace of giving that you're, you're collecting for the saints there in Jerusalem. Grace is also the gifts or the graces given to believers for the edification of the body, the body of Christ. Verse, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 7, but every, unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. We're given grace, we're given gifts according to the measure of the gift of Christ. 
Number 11, grace is a synonym for God's enabling power and strength in our lives. His enabling power and strength in our lives. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 10, But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than them all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. How was I able to do these things? How was I able to work for the Lord's kingdom? How was I able to serve him faithfully? What enabled me to do that? The grace of God. He says, yet not I was able to do this, but the grace of God which was with me. God's enabling power and strength in our lives. Number 12, grace is also an attribute of the Holy Spirit. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 29, of how much sorer punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trod under the foot of the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherein he was sanctified in a holy thing and hath done despite to the spirit of grace. Speaking about those who are due punishment and the punishment they'll receive, but then also, in contrast, those he was sanctified and unholy thing and had done despite under the spirit of grace. Those who are living in sin are doing despite to the spirit of grace, that is, to the Holy Spirit. So grace is an attribute of the Holy Spirit. How do you summarize all of those verses and all those characteristics and all those attributes in a short definition. Grace is so multifaceted. It's divine influence over every aspect of our lives. To the believer and through the believer, grace touches the fabric of our lives daily. Our efforts to categorize grace fall short of the overarching way in which God interacts with mankind. There's not a moment of our lives that we are without the grace of God. Grace is just that big. It's just that pervasive. The grace of God in the life of the believer. The songwriter has written that familiar song, Marvelous Grace of Our Loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there was the blood of the Lamb was spilt. Then the refrain, grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. The verses go on, dark is the stain that we cannot hide. What can avail to wash it away? Look, there's flowing a crimson tide, whiter than snow you may be today. The third verse, verse, marvelous, infinite, matchless grace, freely bestowed on all who believe. You that are longing to see his face, will you this moment his grace receive? Then again the refrain, grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. And so, yes, Grace is unmerited favor, but it's also our means of salvation, justification, and sanctification, glorification. It's enabling power that allows us to live in Christian victory day by day. It's the cause of our thanksgiving to God. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 15, For all things are for your sakes, that the abundant grace 
might through the thanksgiving of many redound or abound to the glory of God. Thanksgiving, that the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many abound to the glory of God. With respect to grace as a means of our salvation, irresistible grace or conditional grace are two terms that you may hear and perhaps I should touch on briefly. The Calvinistic or Reformed view of irresistible grace is that man is fallen and therefore incapable of making any godly decisions. God therefore gives grace to some and not to others, and to those to whom it's given, that grace is irresistible. That is, God has elected those to be saved, and they will be saved. They cannot resist it. The Arminian view, or the conditional grace view, is that grace is offered to everyone. But they must then receive or reject that grace. Certainly, we believe that's the biblical view. Yes, certainly mankind is fallen. We are sinful creatures. We are depraved. But man has also been given free will so that when the Holy Spirit speaks and calls to a person, that person can accept God's grace and be saved. Or he can reject it and be lost. This is the view of salvation that we see as we study our scriptures, our Bible. This view also aligns much better with the instruction before us to Grow in grace. Grow in grace. It's a choice. It's a responsibility. It's a duty to seek to grow in grace. The divine influence of grace in the believer operates in the believer to regenerate and to sanctify, to inspire virtue, to impart strength, to endure trial and resist temptation. All of these things in order to do kingdom work. This is what we need to grow in. To get the context of this verse, I'd like now to return to the beginning of this chapter and read the entire chapter. So I invite you to follow along if you care to. 2 Peter chapter 3, begin reading with verse 1. The second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, and both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation." For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire, against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 
But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness." Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent that you may be found of him in peace, without spot and blameless. And account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of those things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned, and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Peter here is telling them things that they already know. Verse 17, he says, seeing that you know these things. Verse 1, he says, I write unto you in which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. He's not telling them something new, but he's reminding them of some important important things that they need to know. He says here, don't forget what the prophets have said about the coming again of the Lord. Yes, those things were prophesied a long time ago. And they haven't yet occurred. But their fulfillment is certain. There are and will be scoffers who reject this truth. And who walk after their own desires and after their own lusts. They declare that those who prophesied these things, well, they're dead and gone. And their prophecy hasn't been fulfilled. And everything remains the same year after year. They would say that the second coming that they talked about just isn't going to happen. Do we hear echoes of that today? Not only echoes, do we? We hear those direct statements, those exact thoughts being shared. It seems that few are looking for his return. Scripture tells us here, Peter tells us that these scoffers are willingly ignorant. They're not seriously looking for the truth. Rather, they're proclaiming what they want to be truth. They're proclaiming falsehood. Peter says, let let me remind you of the truth. Back in the day of Noah, there were scoffers too. They told Noah that he was crazy. Why? It's, It's never rained before. Why would you build such a monstrosity of an ark? What are you expecting? What are you thinking? But what happened? The rain came. And the world was overflowed with water, and those scoffers perished. The Lord's return will be much the same. He's never come in the clouds with a trump before, has he? He came the first time as a baby in a manger. But his second coming will occur when people least expect it. Don't become impatient. Don't let down your guard. 
Don't become apathetic. One day is with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. God isn't chafing at the bit to destroy the world, but in God's perfect time, it will happen. Men are often slack in keeping their word. Not so with God. He is long-suffering. He desires and wants as many people as possible to come to him. But the day of the Lord and the day of judgment will come. He is truth and his word is sure. Verse 10, how will the day of the Lord come? It says here as a thief in the night. It will come as a thief in the night. It will come when least expected. The heavens will pass away with a roar. The elements will melt with fervent heat. The earth and its works will be burned up. What a sad day for those who scoffed, those who were not looking for his return. If you knew that the thief was going to enter your house this evening, you'd stay up to look for him and be prepared, wouldn't you? But that's not, we don't know when the hour is. Wishing the Lord would not come doesn't make it so. He's going to come just as he promised. Verse 11, seeing what is ahead, how all these things will be destroyed, how then shall we live? And the answer is obvious in all holy conduct and godliness. Looking for that day, hastening and anticipating it. Not that we necessarily want to see the earth destroyed, but it's only after this earth is destroyed that we will receive that new heaven and that new earth that we desperately look for. The place where indwelleth righteousness, the place of our redemption, that place without sin and without sadness. Verse 14, this all reminds us to live diligently so that when he returns, we may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. Peter then recommends his spiritual brother Paul's letters to them. This is Paul who rebuked Peter strongly. In Galatians chapter 2 and verse 11, for withdrawing from the uncircumcised Gentiles. You're familiar with the account, a group of Jews from Jerusalem came there and to the visit of brethren at Antioch. And Peter didn't want to offend these Jews from Jerusalem. They still questioned whether the Gentiles could be pleasing to God. They still questioned whether circumcision was optional. And so Peter separated himself from Paul and from the Gentile believers there, and he sided with the Jerusalem Jews, and Paul rebuked him sharply for that. But to his credit, Peter received Paul's rebuke. He recognized that what he had done was wrong, and he learned from it. And here, as he concludes his letter, he heartily recommends Paul's doctrine, Paul's books, Paul's writings, as truth, and as letters and doctrine for us for our learning today. We then come to the concluding statements where we find our text. And here Peter speaks of things that we know. Verse 17, he says, you know these things. You already know them. But he says in verse 18, continue to grow in knowledge. You know these things, but continue to grow in knowledge. Read Paul's letters. Seek to understand the doctrine of the gospel. Grow in the knowledge of God. For this will enable you to stand firm and true. To reject the error of the wicked. To refrain from following your own lusts. To reprove the scoffers that are among you. Verse 18. 
but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We talked about grace, the broad meaning and the significance of grace in the New Testament. What does it mean to grow in grace? Growing in grace does not mean that God's grace is increased. God's grace is already infinite. It's marvelous. It's matchless. We grasp for words to describe the magnitude of the grace of God. But growing in grace speaks of maturing in our Christian life, which in the words of Romans 8.29 is to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. This is a transformation that takes place in our lives, in our hearts. As Romans 12.12 speaks of, present your bodies a living sacrifice and be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Think of a time whenever someone gave you something that really blessed you. Someone did something for you or gave you something that really blessed you. Let's suppose that you were invited to a banquet at the home of your boss, or your rich boss, let's say. And you're seated at the table, and it's filled with the choicest foods, the best, the best possible. And uh, he serves you, and you just have, makes everything to make it just a most enjoyable evening. And at the end of the lovely evening, the owner stands at the front door to bid you goodbye as, as you're leaving, and you uh, press a dollar in his hand and say, well, thank you very much for your kindness. You know, I've enjoyed the evening very much. What would he think about that? He'd be insulted, wouldn't he? And trying to earn or merit or purchase our salvation is insulting to God. It's not only rude and insulting, it's also impossible. To think that we have something worthwhile that we can give to God to attribute to Almighty God for our salvation. According to Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 4, all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. How are you going to use filthy, dirty, greasy rags to earn favor with God? It's insulting. It's repulsive to Him. So what can you do? Well, in the case of your employer, you can show your appreciation by doing a good job, right? You can thank Him and do a good job in your work. In the case of God, you can show Him that you love Him by growing in the grace that he has extended to you. How do we grow in grace? The spiritual disciplines, prayer, reading the word, meditating, communicating with God, help our minds to become more and more like his. Understanding and applying God's grace in our lives, living in his enabling grace, helps us to mature and to grow in grace. Grace is that attribute of God that enables us to have victory over our sinful nature. Enables us to follow him. It gives us strength and protects us. Without God's grace, without his favor, we'd be helplessly lost in this world. The more grace we have and ask God for, the more mature as Christians we will be. The riches of God's grace are endless. They're without measure. The supply is infinite, but we need to avail ourselves of it. The songwriter, again, penned it well when he said, He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added affliction, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials, his multiplied peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance... When our strength has failed ere the day is half done, 
when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving has only begun. His love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power, no boundary known unto man. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. Are you thankful this evening for the grace of God? We're saved by grace, but to grow in grace is to grow in our understanding of what Jesus did and to grow in our appreciation for the grace that he has given to us. The more we learn about Jesus, the more we will appreciate all that he has done for us. And the more we appreciate his love and sacrifice, the more we will appropriate the never-ending grace of God. You know, we know what it takes to help a stock of corn to grow, you know, fertilizer and water and fertile soil and sun and cultivation, or I guess these days chemicals to keep the, the uh, weeds at bay. We know also what will hinder its growth. You know, hurricane-forced winds or hail or herbicides or traffic that either compacts the soil or knocks over the plants. Those are things that hinder growth. And so if we're a farmer seeking to grow corn, we want to maximize the benefits and minimize the hindrances. Whenever we think about growing in grace, Colossians chapter 3 gives us a pointer here how to do this. I'd like to read Colossians chapter 3, the first three verses. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1. If or since ye have then ye then be risen with Christ, since you be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. Where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God, set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth, for you are dead and your life is hid with Christ and God. Where is my affection? Is it on the things above? If so, I will continue to grow in grace. And growing in knowledge with respect to spiritual things comes from spending time in the word of God and exhorting one another, which scripture admonishes to do, and so much more as we see the day approaching. The scriptures contain the knowledge that we need, the knowledge that we need to know about God and about Jesus, his son, about the Holy Spirit. And living in Christian victory. Don't settle for mediocrity. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 20 says, Brethren, be not children in understanding, howbeit in malice be ye children, but in understanding be men. What's he saying there? In malice be children, but in understanding be men. Don't be mediocre. Be a man. Learn about God. Stand up for truth. Children have a great internal desire to grow into adulthood. A child who remains a child has a physical abnormality. A new believer who remains satisfied with drinking milk has a spiritual deficiency. Desire spiritual growth and take steps to become more like the Savior. I don't think we're going to have a song of invitation this evening, but if the Lord is speaking to your heart, don't leave here this evening without talking to one of the ministers or to myself. You can only grow in the Lord if you first know him as your Lord and Savior, by committing your life, your will, your desires, your affections to him.
And if you do know him, continue to grow in grace. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to gather here this evening. And for each one who has come out to hear your word, may it speak deeply to our hearts and change us into people of the word. Lord, I pray for each one here who knows you as Savior and Lord, that we might grow in maturity, in your grace and knowledge, to become more like you. Perhaps there are those you are speaking to that have not made that decision here this evening. Lord, continue speaking to their heart. Give them the courage to make that commitment, even this evening. Don't let them rest until they're right with you. Heavenly Father, I pray for this congregation. They might be a real lighthouse in this community. Heavenly Father, may your light shine brightly from this place, that those nearby might know that those who worship here and serve here love you and serve you. Heavenly Father, give us traveling mercies as we travel home this evening. And if it's your will, may we gather again tomorrow evening to look again into your word. Thank you for your goodness and blessing to us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.